0: The reading is from St. Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Let us be attentive. Brethren, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Indeed, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary, and the true tent, which is not set up by man, but by the Lord.
1: I
2: at that time a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law, how do you read? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half-dead. Then he set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go
1: and do likewise. Peace be to you who read the good tidings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Even though today is the 8th Sunday of Luke, and we read the beautiful parable of the Good Samaritan, it's also the feast day of St. John Chrysostom, and we pray his liturgy. Every single opportunity that we have to do a divine liturgy except for ten times a year when we do the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. So, what do we know about the life of St. John Chrysostom? Probably not a lot. So I thought I would take the opportunity to talk about his life today and then draw three lessons from his life. He was born in Antioch. Both his parents were Christian. And he was born around the year 345. So, halfway through the fourth century. His dad died while he was young. His mom continued to live and raised him as a very virtuous Christian. It wasn't until the age of 18, though, that he was actually baptized, which was not uncommon during that period of time. People didn't want their Christians, didn't want their children necessarily to be baptized and then go sow their oats and commit serious sins after baptism. So they would delay the baptism until the young adult was mature and on the right track and then they would baptize him. And this is what happened with St. John. He was very highly educated in the classics and in law. As a matter of fact, his mentor in law wanted him to succeed him and become a lawyer. But St. John Chrysostom would have none of that. He very much wanted to dedicate his life to the church and to the Lord. From a very early age, St. John was an extremely gifted orator. His teachers, again, wanted him to pursue something in the public speaking realm as well, but he refused that. So you can see that the world was beckoning him, but God was beckoning him to something different. So at first he stayed on his own family property where he dedicated his life to the ascetic life, to prayer, and to the study of scripture. You're going to see this as a recurring theme in his life. The ascetic life, dedication to prayer, and the study of scripture. Once his mother died, John then was free to sell all of the family estate and give it to the poor. And he went and he joined a group of monks in the mountains around Antioch and he became strictly obedient to a well-known Syrian ascetic. He did this for four years, again, dedicating himself to the ascetic life to prayer, and to the study of scriptures. After the fourth year, he left this band of brothers and he went into a cave for an entire year. He never slept laying down. He would literally sleep sitting or even strap underneath his arm ropes so that he could catch a wink or two while he was still standing. Again, during this year, he devoted himself to the ascetic life, to prayer, and to not just the study of scripture, but the memorization of the scriptures. We memorize verses. He memorized, his attempt was to memorize the entire New Testament. After this year, though, he was forced to go back into Antioch because he was literally undergoing kidney failure because of his extreme asceticism. So the Lord, in a sense, through his physical limitations, called him back into the world. Upon his return in the year 381, at the age of 30, he was ordained a deacon, and then five years later, he was ordained a priest. For 12 years, as a priest, he was in charge of the spiritual direction of the city of Antioch. Every single day, he would preach one of his famous homilies in a different church. And everywhere he went to preach, the people would gather to listen to him. Not for 15 minutes, not for 20 minutes, but for an hour sometimes. Wrapped with what he had to say. Most of the sermons that we have today come from this period of time when he was still a priest in Antioch. It was during this period that the people who listened to him gave him the title Chrysostomos, which means golden mouth, because of his speech. Not just his eloquence, but because of the authority and the illumination of his command over Scripture and its deeper meaning and application to the spiritual life. His sermons were always based on Scripture. He would first explain the literal meaning of the sacred text and the divine plan that it revealed, and then he would give reference to the everyday application for the Christians that were listening to him in their everyday life. His sermons were challenging. He talked about repentance. He talked about what they needed to do to correct themselves. He was bold in his speech. But the people, the people respected him because he in his life was even stricter on himself, far stricter than he ever was on the people. The message he gave to them, they could see, was lived by his own life. He was so above reproach that it gave him that license and that capital to correct them in a way that if he was a hypocrite, they would never have accepted his words. In addition to his preaching and teaching during this period of time when he was in charge of the spiritual direction of Antioch, he also supervised charitable works. As a matter of fact... After his life, they ended up calling him the Father of Mercy because he, in almost every one of his sermons and his teachings and in his actions, was all about delivering solutions to the problems of poverty, of excess, and of people in need like the Good Samaritan that we read about today. Not only was he involved in charitable works, but he also directed the worship life of the church in Antioch. You can see that already during this period of time, he was so intimately involved in the prayer life, the corporate prayer life of the church, that you could see that later he ended up having such an influence over the development of the divine liturgy that we attribute a whole entire divine liturgy to his name. In the year 398, At the age of around 47 he was elected to become the Archbishop of Constantinople succeeding a canonized saint at that time the politics in the city of Constantinople were extremely unstable there was a lot of worldliness in the royalty in high public office and in leadership in the church they needed someone exactly like Saint John Chrysostom to come and fulfill that see. He immediately began preaching and teaching the people just as he did in Antioch. He continued to visit the sick, to be extremely merciful, and to welcome anyone who wanted to come to him as a spiritual father. But he was also quick to see the inequity and the hypocrisy all around him. He was swift to condemn the sumptuous living, the pleasures, and the hypocritical piety of the rich. He gave himself as an example to the people of evangelical poverty by reducing the usual Episcopal standard of living to the most bare necessities. What you saw in the life of Mother Teresa and her sisterhood was first seen in the life of St. John Chrysostom many centuries before. He took his quarters and he literally stripped it of all of the wealth and took the treasures of his Arch Episcopal office and he sold them and distributed them to the needs of the poor, to starting hospitals and even hospices for people who would come to visit Constantinople as strangers who needed to be put up. He acted vigorously to correct the morals of the clergy. He was such a loving pastor. His love created such a courage inside of him that he took on the powers both around the royalty, among those in high state, and also those who were worldly bishops and priests. He knew that this would get him into trouble earthly speaking but he also knew that he was the shepherd participating in the high priesthood of the one shepherd and that his call was to love them and to be a prophet even as John the Baptist was to Herod to tell them the truth about what they were doing and that it was leading them to judgment by doing so He aroused the love, the fervor, the deep repentance of the masses. But at the same time, he aroused the insecurity and the fury of Empress Evdoxia and her entourage. It didn't take long for this to trickle down to the people in the church who did everything they can to falsely accuse St. John Chrysostom. This is not an unheard of pattern in the history of the church where the people love the shepherd, but those in power who misuse their power, who are so tightly gripping the world, despise him because of what he represents, being in the world but not of the world. And so it didn't take long for him to be sentenced by a local council filled with people stacking the deck against him to exile, to Bithynia. An interesting thing happened, though. As soon as he arrived in Bithynia, a terrible earthquake struck Constantinople. There were many, many, many disasters associated with this earthquake. And the Empress Eudoxia like a laser beam, interpreted the earthquake as, I have made a big mistake in exiling St. John Chrysostom. Order him to come back to the holy city and to retake his throne and begin to continue his ministry as our shepherd. So he came back from his first exile. But he continued to boldly preach and teach and stand For the gospel, for the truth, for love, for humility, for repentance, for virtue, for self-sacrifice. In the face of so much corruption. Not amongst the common people, but amongst those at the top. And so it didn't take long after this that they exiled him a second time. This time, to a place far away where his influence would not be felt. Now I have to tell you. That history says that both times the people literally wanted to rise up and to protest in such a strong way. But both times St. John Chrysostom said, I am a servant of the Master and Lord who like a sheep led to the slaughter did not open his mouth. I will imitate him and you will imitate me as I imitate him. And even though there were, especially the second time, there was uprisings. Because of his example, because of the peace in his heart, because of his humility, and because of the influence he had on the people, he quelled what could have been terrible. Nevertheless, his second exile was so extreme. Literally, he had to walk on foot at his older age and with great infirmities, remember his kidney failure that he had early on in his life, for three months straight in the harshest of weather and the harshest of conditions. There was a martyr in the local area named St. Vasiliskos. And he appeared to St. John Chrysostom the night before St. John was to fall asleep in the Lord, telling him, giving him a forewarning, as the greatest of saints receive, that tomorrow you will join me and and the Lord by falling asleep. So St. John Chrysostom asked his attendants to dress him in all white. And he received the holy gifts. And then he fell asleep in the Lord. But before he did, the last words on his mouth were, Glory be to God for all things. And then he breathed his last. Once Empress Evropia and all those of that generation fell asleep themselves, things calmed down in Constantinople and her children ordered that the relics of Saint John Chrysostom be ceremoniously returned to the holy city and they were and we celebrate that feast on January 27th every year so the three things that i want you to take from this beautiful life is number 1 saint john is considered to be one of the foremost fathers of the church He is read not only by the Orthodox but by the Catholics and Protestants alike. As a matter of fact, some of the only exposure that Protestants and their seminaries, and I'm talking about good seminaries, get of the entire period of the patristic era is through their reading of St. John Chrysostom. He is called a doctor of the scriptures. His commentaries are extremely authoritative today. No father of the church can be considered such without reading his works. But he did not understand the scriptures without dedicating his life to the asceticism that I repeatedly shared with you, to prayer, and to study. We have to cooperate with God. We have to deeply repent in our life. We have to be illuminated by the Holy Spirit to understand the truth of our faith. St. John Chrysostom did not become a holy father of the church by accident, but by his cooperation with God through the commandments of Christ and the life of the church. Point number two. He was a bold strict preacher and teacher. He called people to repentance. But despite this, when they could have been upset by his words, when they could have been offended, they knew the depth of his own life. His life was so far above reproach that they accepted his words because they saw it first in his own life. We have much to share, only if we have a life in Christ. People will not listen to our words if they do not see a holiness and sanctity of life. If they do not see love and humility and mercy and compassion in us then we have nothing to say to anybody even though they are hungering and thirsting for the truth in the world all around us. So we need to imitate St. John the Golden Mouth. First through our holiness of life and then and only then by sharing the truth that we hold dear and near to our hearts. And finally, we have to as disciples of Christ be willing to suffer. To suffer in humility and in virtue. This is a pattern that we see in all of the saints. Saint John Chrysostom was loved by the people. He was a self-sacrificial shepherd to them. And yet he was persecuted by the church. He suffered that persecution with quiet and peace and love and humility. His suffering, his righteous suffering, spoke louder than any protest, any words, any anger, any self-righteous indignation could ever speak. At the end of all that he endured, his final message as the orator of the church was glory to God for all things. We need to have that always on our lips, in our hearts, and in our minds. Glory to God for all things. God is in control. He knows what He's doing. His providence is worthy of our trust and our faith. When we see things happening and we don't understand why, we need to have faith. We need to say again and again and again, we trust you, Lord. Glory to God in all things. Let that be the mantra of our lives as we ask for his intercessions, the intercessions of St. John Chrysostom, and we try to imitate his life as he imitated our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.